0: Looking back at my childhood, I realised growing up surrounded by an odd mix of characters with undiagnosed afflictions was the perfect preparation for my first job at the local psychiatric facility. Bailey Henderson Hospital was just like my home life, only the names had been changed. And I took to the place like a depressant to Prozac. And although my friends were horrified by my encounters, I thrived in this maelstrom of madness. In fact, the more chaotic and outrageous the behaviour of the residents, the more I oddly felt at home. Nothing seemed to faze me, seeing a blind woman catch and eat a live mouse. Fascinating pulling a metre-long tapeworm from a gentleman's anus. Don't mind if I do. Force-feeding mashed pumpkin to a dead person, all in a day's work. Nothing was ever bizarre enough to make me blink, wince, or vomit. It was as if I'd been in training for this kind of mayhem my whole life. Which brings me to my next guest, Emma. As a professional triathlete, she dominated the world with her strength, determination and stamina, which ended up being three characteristics that would come in handy with her family down the track. Welcome to my fucked up family. Multiple world triathlon champion Emma Carney, welcome to my fucked up family. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Thanks for
0: having me. Did you ever think that you'd be on a podcast called My Fucked Up Family? Uh,
1: no, but you know, if anyone was going to be on it, I reckon I've got the
0: family for it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, there's there's an angle to your family, which is, is quite colourful, I've got to say, and uh, there's some, certainly some interesting stories to tell. But we'll start off with what prompted uh, uh, me getting in contact with you, of course, is the fact that you've just uh, launched your autobiography, Hardwired, Life, Death and Triathlon, and first of all, I want to say, Emma, congratulations, because that book is an amazing achievement. I loved it.
1: Thanks. It was uh it's a, it's a different kind of sporting autobiography because I kept diaries at the time and um, it's sort of the stories behind sport and what goes on and a lot of people tell me it's quite a tragic story, so yeah.
0: Well, there's ser- <laughs> there certainly are, the, yeah, there certainly are that, those <laughs> shades of it, you know, Emma. What prompted you to write the book after all this time?
1: I was always going to write a book, but I was going to write a book on my five world titles, my two Olympic gold medals, and my annihilation of the Hawaii Ironman record.
0: Yeah, but it didn't quite work out like that, though, did it?
1: (laughs) My career stopped very abruptly, Mm -hmm. but I um, was very dominant in sports, and then I was sensationally um, not selected for the 2000 Olympic Games, and then I was forced to retire because I had a cardiac arrest. So a very, very messy, ugly...
0: Dramatic. Um,
1: Devastating. Yeah, devastating way to finish a sporting career. Yeah.
0: yeah. And
1: I, you know, I was brought up, um, I've got a, well, I was born in England and I've got an English background and, you know, very stiff upper lip, just carry on, don't show any, don't buckle, don't show any emotion. I never spoke about it and just, just battled on. And, you know, it's, it was really quite a difficult way to retire. Yeah. I don't know, I just, I, I think it explains me. A lot of people have read the book and said, I really understand you better now, Emma.
0: Let's go back then. What I really want to talk about, obviously, is is your family. Tell us a little bit about growing up in Melbourne uh, and your mum and dad and, and your sisters.
1: So, yeah, I, I've already mentioned that we were born in England. Mm. My dad, David, he, he is, um, I think I take a lot, of um my traits after my dad um, very good and some very very poor ones <laughs> <laughs> dad dad went to a movie under the under the southern cross it was a movie that was released in the late 50s and he went to the movies with his granddad and he's watched this movie and he said it was absolutely spellbound and he said to his granddad what was that and his granddad turned to him and said if you that is that's a place called australia if you ever get the chance to live there, you must go and live there. And so from that day on, Dad was going to live in Australia. Yeah. And um, he was only 11 at the time. So, you know, he finished his school and um, ended up... Actually met Mum at school at the age of 15, which I can't... I find that amazing because everyone at the age of 15 annoyed the hell out of me in school. But anyway, (laughs) um, I've always said that Mum was destined to live in Australia because her name's Sheila. And, you know, Mum and Dad had... My older sister Jane, myself, and younger sister Claire, all over in England, and Dad uh, managed to get himself a job transfer to Melbourne. And I think it was the God nineteenth of February, nineteen. I don't, uh, yeah, something like that, nineteen seventy-five. And we were supposed to stop in Darwin, but Darwin had just been blown off the map with Cyclone Tracy.
0: Yeah.
1: And Mum said when they were flying over and you know they're talking that they're going to change the the route of the plane mum was a little bit apprehensive because you know she knew that all these things in Australia could kill you and suddenly a city had been wiped out and and um but dad was very much very excited and I just grew up with a dad that everything Australian was excellent but um and dad was also in the sports industry so he ended up being at Adidas, and then he ended up being one of the heads at Nike in Australia. So because he was it, quite, so he, he, was,
0: he, he was quite successful, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, Dad was. He, um, I suppose, he's just a bit like me. He's got a got an idea, and he goes that way. It gets him in a lot of trouble as well, because yeah. you know he's a confrontational character. So, um, but he does the right thing.
0: Yeah, right. So, so when you first arrived in Australia, where did, where did they live?
1: We bought a house out in the suburbs, and then Mum and Dad decided, "Oh no, we want to live in the Australian bush, but we don't want to live rural." So we ended up buying. Uh, Mum and Dad ended up buying three and a half acres in a place called Eltham, which is sort of northeast of Melbourne, about half an hour out of the city. And typical Mum and Dad, let's build a mud brick. <laughs> so it was the seventies.
0: It was the seventies, though, wasn't it? Yeah.
1: And Dad was kind of like, "Well, how hard can that be?" And so we ended up. And I actually think this is why I had a very strong core as an athlete. We ended up making three and a half thousand mud bricks for the house (laughs) and mum and dad then wanted to do it properly. So they wanted to use recycled timbers and, you know, they went off and bought secondhand bridges and when the bridges were being demolished and, you know, towed them back to Melbourne and... All sorts of stuff. So the house is...
0: How long did it take them to build that house?
1: To give an example, so 3,500 bricks. The best we ever did in an afternoon was we made 129. Wow. So that was just sort of of progression. (laughs) Oh, God. So we had it down pat and the soil was, we excavated for the house. You can't use the topsoil. You have to use the the like clay subsoil. So, you know, we had the excavator put the pile of clay on one side and we made the mud bricks out of that. So it was quite quite an amazing thing to do. And, you know, in that time, I discovered running. So, you know, we'd make a couple of mud bricks and I'd head off for a run and come back and finish off the mud bricks. So... Just crazy stuff.
0: Oh, that sounds. uh, It sounds like you could quite easily grow up resenting your parents for doing that to you. Okay, we're we're going for another weekend of making mud bricks. Kids, come on, let's go.
1: Every it was every weekend, and I'm not a particularly like I'm. It's we're a very close family. We had no relatives out here, so we're very close. Yeah, I know. My older sister Jane was like, "Mike, can we go see our friends on the weekend?" And Dad said, "Oh, you can, but you've got to have, be dropped off early, and I'll have to pick you up late because I've got to make you know a hundred mud bricks." <laughs> so Jane would do that every now and then, but uh, you kind of—I never did because I'd much rather. I'm not. I don't know. I suppose I could see the goal and
0: yeah.
1: I, yeah, just sort of stuck with it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I
1: trusted my dad, which probably wasn't the smartest thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned your older sister, Jane. Uh, tell us, what was she like when you were growing up?
1: Oh, Jane Jane was a wonderful sister. So yeah. she was 16 months older than me, mm-hmm. and um, she took her role as head of the junior household very seriously. So she's, she was always looking after Claire and I, and right. she was always... I don't know. I just, I mean, Jane and I were so close. You know, when we first came to Australia, you know, Jane went to school and and I was like, wow, don't I go as well? I was quite devastated and I had, you know, two years to wait because I was two years behind at school. It was a year between us. And um, so when Jane came home from school, I said, what did you do? And so she taught me. And so when I went to school, I already learned prep. Yeah. And just because Jane spent every afternoon telling me what she'd learned and I was quite advanced and that was at the local primary school. And then when Wesley, because mum and dad sort of tried to move me up a grade and the school said, no, I was socially immature, <laughs> which I think I still <laughs> am. <laughs> I never developed that yeah, side. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and then... Wesley went co-ed and they were looking for girls and mum and dad had three, so we ended up going to Wesley and it was, yeah, I really enjoyed going to Wesley and Jane cried every night because she was leaving her friends behind. Jane said to me, don't you miss your friends? And I said, honestly, Jane, I can't even remember their names. and That was like the next day.
0: So you are obviously quite, I mean, incredibly close, but quite different. Was she as interested in sport as you were?
1: Jane, so Jane was very, um, she didn't like the competition, which I found quite ironic because she said to me, oh, Emma, how can you be so mean to people? Because she never stood next to me on the start line in a cross-country race because she reckoned I swung my arms back and hit her. And then Jane ended up being a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, hang on a minute, isn't that the same thing that you just do it, you know, under cover of papers in courtrooms? Yeah. But, <laughs> But, um... She she enjoyed the fitness side. She did not like the competition side. But she was a good good athlete. She raced age group triathlon. Yeah. And um, but it was my younger sister Claire who was two and a half years younger. She um yeah she was the athlete. I reckon Claire was a better athlete than me. But she didn't have the same. I don't know. There's that thing you have where you'd rather die than lose. Yeah. And I definitely had that.
0: Yeah. Did did your dad sort of instill that in you?
1: Yeah, dad so dad was at every race. Um, he was always there, he was always around and I mean he was there for me, but he was also there because he was sponsoring athletes through Nike and he was checking up on, you know, what the athletes were doing and stuff like that. But to be honest, Dad never ever pushed me, never woke me up in my life. I've always dragged dad out to early morning runs and Dad was very very, very aware that because of my makeup and because of how I behave, if I um, was let loose on something, I would go one hundred percent at it. And he knew, just from discussions, you know, with the athletes that, at Nike and, and Adidas, he knew that if I trained too hard too soon, I'd be one of those burnt out juniors. Yeah. And so he prevented me from, he didn't allow me to train, he didn't allow me to um, compete, didn't allow me to have a coach, didn't allow me to join an athletics club. And it wasn't until I was about the age of 18 that he let me run um, like a 10K road race. So he held me back all the time. It was all about speed and technique and skill. And I, I just think that he was like me, you know, I never, we don't do things. Sort of half-assed. Yeah. Um, I went to I went to Wesley College in Melbourne, and it had just gone co-ed, so um, it used to be a boys' school, and so the girls were encouraged, you know, joining, joining, joining. So I started, you know, doing what the girls do and played softball and netball, and um, I was always playing to win. So, so team sports really frustrated me, yeah. And I was actually banned from team sports <laughs> because I was allegedly, never proven allegedly throwing the ball at people and not to them. So I was, you know, hitting people with the ball, basically.
0: Can you confirm or deny that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's never been proven, so I'm just <laughs> carrying on through life. <laughs> anyway, Wesley, Wesley sat me down and said, look, you don't have to win all the time. And I just I just remember I almost fell off my chair and I said, well, what? You know? <laughs> so they said, look, Emma, you're a really good athlete. You could." Easily. Well, I was in the first team. I was in grade four. Um, they said, "Look, do cross country in athletics, and we'll give you an exemption in the other season of sport." And I said, "Just to, okay, just to so, keep you
0: away from everybody else."
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so I then just ran for the school and was never beaten. And you know, Wesley loved it. And I loved it, and no one else got hurt.
0: Uh, yeah, so it was um, <laughs> everyone was happy. Yeah. So how did you make the move into triathlons then?
1: So I um, finished school, got to the stage where I was uh, making teams. So I made the world cross country team and ran for Australia, and I made a couple of road relay teams. But the jump from junior to senior athletics is, is quite a big jump. You know, I was running just under nine ten for three k, which which is great as a junior, but you know, to be world class, you've got to run an 840 or quicker. So you've got to find yourself 30
0: seconds. Seconds, yeah.
1: Yeah, and that's quite a long way is to start the lap of a track. Yeah. And <laughs> Dad said, Well, these triathlons keep popping up. Have a go at the local triathlon. So I went down to um, the local race, which is at Elwood. It's a Bayside suburb of Melbourne. Um, 750 meter swim, 20K bike, 5K run. And I thought, Well, it can't be that hard, you know. So got in the water and I lost seven minutes over the 750 metres of swimming and I've never been so lost and beaten up and pummeled in my life. So I got on my bike and there's people everywhere. You know, I come from a background of running on the track, knowing exactly where everyone is or cross-country, you know everyone is. Got on my bike and just rode flat out and got off my bike. So I just ran as fast as I could and I, every time I passed a girl I asked her are you winning? You know, and she'd say no so okay, so go past the next one, are you winning? No, go past the next one, are you winning? No. And I must have been about, I don't know, a K and a half from home and I said to a girl, are you winning? She said yes. I said oh well, good and I overtook her and won. <laughs> <laughs> so you know I just thought oh god that was a lucky escape. Um, didn't think anything of it. Anyway a couple of nights later dad You know, dinner table said, right, I reckon you're the best triathlete in the world. And Dad's, he's an accountant by trade, so very black and white. If it works on paper, it'll work. Yeah. And he basically dissected triathlon results worldwide, and he'd looked at um, the bike and the run splits and the swim splits, and he worked out that I was a couple of minutes ahead of the rest of the world. And I said, but Dad, I lost seven minutes on the swim. And internationally, they race double the distance. So that's 14 minutes down out of the water. And Dad said, oh, no, no, you need to learn to swim. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. He said, you're running already there. You're fastest. And you're biking. He says, I reckon you're world class on the bike. And he said, I looked at the calendar. And I, in 18 months' time, there's a world championship in New Zealand, in Wellington, I reckon you should race the summer season, stay in Australia, work on your swim, and go to Wellington and win worlds, and then that's your debut race. And we pulled it off. And Claire won the juniors, and I won the seniors on eighteen months later. Do
0: you know that's that's yeah. just so incredible, isn't it? So you, you basically have to learn to swim, uh, and you become within eighteen months you become the world triathlon champion champion. Did you know at that point or did you have a, an, an inkling that it was going to eventually become an Olympic sport? Because that was what you always wanted to do is compete at the Olympics.
1: Yeah, there was. I think it had just been accepted in. Right. Okay. Um, as an Olympic sport. And that was, you know, triathlon was beginning to, um, well, it was having to sharpen up its rules and things like that. And so when I won world, I was the new kid on the block, a new athlete and world triathlon Wanted me very much to stick with their program because there were other, or their race series, because there were other race series around the world that were like, we don't care about the Olympics, we just want to stay true, true to triathlon. Yeah. So, yeah, then it was sort of a lot of infighting in the sport, and I just, um, I stuck with World Triathlon because I wanted, I wanted that pathway into Olympics.
0: Yeah which made it devastating even the more devastating that you you weren't selected in 2000. And yeah, yeah. So from that race I mean really those those next few years you were just legendary in the sport. So in a way I guess the 90s were was just a fantastic time for you. But then in contrast I guess the, the Olympics come around in 2000 and as we've mentioned that you, you weren't selected for the team due to a whole lot of scand- <laughs> scandalous uh, behaviour and, so, and that really kicked off what you must look back on now as just a terrible decade of the 2000s. It
1: did kick off a very ordinary time mm. and I, I was embarrassed and ashamed. That was, that was my overwhelming feeling. And I withdrew from everything.
0: So you realise, two thousand Olympics isn't <laughs> going to happen. Did yeah. you, you? You probably then thought, well, I'm going to make it to Athens. Then did you?
1: Yeah, I was still, um, I was still in the mix. So yeah. I was still, you know, in the Olympic athlete program, and I was still very much a part of the mix. So I was still um, racing well. I still, I wasn't as dominant. in, in two thousand and four, um, you know, before the Olympics, I um, I was over in Canada couple of days before a, um, a major event, and I pushed off the wall in the pool and felt my heart race after a feeling of weakness. And I thought I was just having a panic attack, and I thought, Jesus, I've really lost it. <laughs> um, so I finished the session, and I was actually approaching cardiac arrest, and my heart rate was 248. Wow. Um, yeah, and then and there was a whole palaver of getting help because no one... You know, in that environment of um, triathlon on the straight, no one gave a toss. I said, "My heart's racing. No one cared. I sat in the team bus and it was really stifling sitting there because your chest gets compressed. Um, and I got out
0: at some lights, and <laughs> the bus drove off.
1: <laughs> I mean like if it wasn't your life and death, it's actually quite funny.
0: So you're complaining that your your heart's racing, you're feeling terrible, yeah. you hop no off the bus for some fresh air at the traffic lights yeah. and the light yeah. turns green and they just leave you there.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. But anyway, I I worked out I was dying and um, got help. And, and the physio got out with me. So the physio, thank God he got out and I said, look, he was whinging and everything. And I said, look, you've got to get help. I reckon I'm dying. I can't breathe because I was lying on the floor at this stage on the footpath. So, yeah. I, went out, I was actually writing my book and I thought, actually, this is quite – because I've never reflected because, you know, I was brought up with that just carry on. Yeah. And when I put everything together, I, I actually – because that period in my life, I just – okay, I'm just going to close that door. I'm not going to think about that because it's too depressing. I'm not going to think about that. I'm not going to think about that. And so I was opening all these doors that I hadn't touched for for years and I thought, wow, that's really bad. There's a 26-year-old little, you know, female that just wanted to be the best in the world and she's on the side of the road in cardiac arrest. Dying. And the whole team has tugged it off.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm like that's really, really shit.
0: It's incredibly and shit. It,
1: so, yeah, I just, um, then I got myself back and the diagnosis was quite funny with my heart. Yeah. Because I thought, you know, come on, guys, fix this, and I'll get back on the circuit. Got races to do. Uh, I didn't actually believe that I was done.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Your sister Jane, at that point, around that yeah. time, she'd helped. She, as you mentioned, she was a lawyer, and she was part of your legal team who put uh, yeah. your, your appeal in to actually be selected into the Olympic team. So she worked tirelessly in the background uh, to help you at that point then tell us tell us what happened to her around 2005.
1: Yes so I had my defibrillator fitted in October of 2004 Mm -hmm. and you know the adjustment for that was pretty ordinary and um, you're just frightened because your heart rate goes up and your defib's going to go off and you've all of a sudden everything that you've done in your whole life has stopped and Anyway, some good news was Jane, um, she'd recently been married and she was having her first child. And so that was, you know, that was really good news for the family. Um, Jane had little Zoe. She was actually due on my birthday, but she had her on the, um, in August just after my birthday. And um, I went to see Jane and she said to me, oh, you know, we're looking at Zoe and everything and Justin, her husband, was there. And she said to me, I've got a lump on my head. I said, oh, really you don't need to bang your head because James was a little bit clumsy. <laughs> she said, "She said no. She said, I've got a lump on my um, left boob. And I said, oh, really? She said, yeah, I'm worried about it. And that, something must have just drawn our attention away. Um, anyway, 10 days later, she said to me, oh, I just had a um, call from my doctor. So Jane had a melanoma removed from her um, neck in 19... 19- 96 and it was a melanoma and it was cleared and she had that five-year clearance and everything was fine and then in 2003 she found one herself on the back of her um, neck and it was um, you know another melanoma and it was a nodular type which is the aggressive type and when she took the dressing off I helped her redress that when she had that cut out and that's The the scar on her back was like quite horrifying, how much area they'd taken. And they obviously hadn't taken everything. So, when Jane was um, pregnant with Zoe, um, you know, the the melanoma had obviously got in the bloodstream and was lying dormant. And so, when Jane was pregnant, um, the body's looking after the the baby and um, Jane's immune system's down. So, the melanoma ran rampant. And so, the lumps that Jane was filling were tumors. So Zoe was born, um, she'd had some abnormal blood tests which were put down to pregnancy. and um, Yeah, when she was retested, they said, wow, you've, you're riddled with cancer. So from that diagnosis to um, Jane dying, it was five months. So just really, really sad and everything about it. Jane never, ever, ever had good news. So everything was bad news. There was never a good scan. There was never a good outcome. There was never a treatment that worked. There was never anything. Everything was shit. And so when um, we hit Christmas of um, 95, 96, so 2005, 2005, 2006, yeah. um, Jane asked me, she said, look, I don't I don't reckon I'm going to live much longer. Um, I can't look after Zoe anymore. I can't handle the screaming or the crying of the baby we're going to have mum, our mum can look after Zoe and Justin's parents can look after her, but you, can you look after me? Because Justin had to get to work and she didn't want to go to hospital. And I said, yeah, okay. So I looked after Jane, I mean, obviously with Justin and um, with help for the last, I suppose it must have been four weeks of her life. Uh. And just, yeah, just horrendous.
0: Tell me about the time, it was probably earlier in that diagnosis. I mean, it must have just been such a terrible five months when Jane asked you to come over and and help and and you were late.
1: Oh, yeah. So Jane, early on with the scans and everything, Jane, um, you know, asked me, she said, can you come over and help take me to a doctor's appointment because Justin has an appointment at work and he can't get out of it and um, if he doesn't go to work, you know, we're all screwed. Uh, He had his own business. So, you know, he had to go in every now and then. And so I said, yeah, sure. Anyway, I was late. I messed, up, messed it all up, got um, stuck in traffic, and I was late. And Jane had called a friend and left a note and said, um, <laughs> I'll tone it down a bit. Basically, get out of my life. never want to see you again. No,
0: I don't want you to tone um, <laughs> it down. You tell me what she said.
1: <laughs> well, she basically said, um, you can fuck off out of my life. And... You know, I read that and went, well, but of course I didn't accept it. And I thought, right, this is really serious. So I rang her. Of course, she told me where to go. Um, I hung around when she came back and she kicked me out. So I thought, right, okay, this is quite serious. So I said, what can I do? And, you know, Jane was in bed and I thought, I oh, know, I'll clean her windows. And, um, you know, Jane was the type, well, we all are, give each other a key to the house. So I had a key to her house, but I went I went home, got mum and dad's um, washing, window washing stuff, and came back. Started washing Jane's windows, and she opened the curtain, and she you know gave me a gobful, told you where told you where to go, not you know. And I said, well, I'm just going to finish, uh, um, you know what I've started. I'm just going to clean your windows, and she said, good, and then get lost, you know. So I did that, and went down the back of the house and jumped the fence, didn't really want to walk through the house. And then um, I thought, well, I'll do the insides as well. So I came inside and, of course, she got out of bed and yelled at me and abused me and um, I finished the windows. And then I said to her, now I'm really thirsty because I've been so helpful. Do you want a cup of tea? And she said no. So, of course, I made her one. And I sat with her and I drank my tea while she just, she just cried. And she said, Emmy, you've really got to help me here. And it, it, that was sort of... Yes, yeah, I said to her, look, I'll never, ever let you down again. And I never did. But it was, you know, a, a moment where Jane really was writing people off. And, um, yeah, she I don't think she saw Claire and Dad again in that time. She didn't want people to remember her, what she looked like when she was so ill. Really? Mm, yeah.
0: How did they feel about that?
1: I don't know, because my family doesn't speak. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there's, I don't know if Claire's read my book She's read parts of it And she said, oh, I didn't know you were so good at English So that's Claire, you know, saying, well done Yeah And I think she's read all the bits on her <laughs> Yeah <laughs> But Dad, um, I got him to read the chapter on Jane oh. And it was a draft And that's hard that, I don't think that's really been edited That is exactly how I wrote it And um Dad said, "I I can't ever read that again." He said, "That will haunt me to my grave." Yeah, I think he's read my book quite a few times now, and he always skips the Jane chapter.
0: Oh, it's it's heartbreaking. And Mm. do you know? I I think that gesture of cleaning her windows (laughs) to me was just so beautiful. That. Really? Oh, yeah.
1: Well, there was no way I was going to accept that I wasn't going to be part of her life like that. She probably knew that. She probably thought, "Oh, bloody hell, he's Emma, you know." She's all her life. I've been annoying her. Yeah. And there was no way I was going to, you know. I mean, all my life and all her life, I'd been stuffing up around her as well. So.
0: Because she 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 yeah. she, she lashed out at you one time and. Didn't she about uh, the fact that she got a mel- <laughs> melanoma was somehow your fault?
1: Yeah, I think when people are dying and they must they must lie there and think, why the hell is this me? What the hell have I done to deserve this? And you know, I I would say to Jane, just tell me exactly what you think, and then she you know she'd tell me exactly what she thought, and she it was all my fault she had melanoma because she tried to be outside like I was, and she tried to be like me, and I'm like Jane, this rubbish, you know. But um, she'd probably kill me if she knew I'd written. Well, she knew I was going to write a book, but um, she'd probably kill me. (laughs) Why did you write so much about her? But, um, yeah, very, very sad. I mean, of course, she left behind a beautiful little baby and um, a wonderful husband, and, um, you know, he's remarried, and it just makes the whole relationship with her little girl, Zoe, um, so disjointed because yeah. you know he has to move on. He has to. Yeah. And I think, I think we all look sound like Jane, and it you know must break his heart.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that final that final four weeks then, where you moved into Jane and Justin's house, tell us a little bit about that.
1: Just really full on. So um, Jane, the pain they're in. Is, is unbelievable. So it's constant pain, constant pain, constantly not um, not able to move properly. And she got to the point where she was skeletal from the waist up and from the waist down she was bloated. So she couldn't move her own body. So it took two of us and, you know, her head became so heavy on her um, neck that, you know, if you didn't support her head, it would flop and you'd break her neck. So it was really... It was really horrific and I um, i don't know, I, I just would look at her eyes and it's the only way I could recognise it because she was a skeleton and I'd look at her eyes and I'd, I thought, oh, that's why people talk about the eyes being um, the soul of a person because she could still see it was her by her eyes and it just, yeah, there's just it was awful everything was awful and everything progressively got worse but her brain remained Jane and she could sit only sit there like a prisoner in her own body yeah you know she asked me if she should cover every mirror in the house I don't want to see this so you'd do that and you know you'd sit up with her all night and you you know you feel guilty eating because she couldn't eat so you'd you, just, you don't want to sleep because she's in so much pain. So you stay up and talk and put ice packs and massage. And you don't know if it's day or night because the curtains are pulled in case someone sees her. and You know, all that sort of stuff. And um, she, gave me, she gave me Wednesday mornings and Saturday mornings off. She said, you can't do this all the time. It's not healthy. And I said, look, I don't give a shit how long I do it for. I don't need a break. And she made me go out. And the first time I went out, I went to a shopping center and thought, I don't know, just wandered around. Because I still wasn't really doing any exercise because, you know, of my heart condition. And um, I was stopped by someone to buy a daffodil for um, the Cancer Council and I said, no. And I must have said it really abruptly and they said, oh, don't you want to cure cancer? And I turned around and I said, can you tell me how the fuck buying a $2 um, daffodil is going to fix my sister right now? And then I realised, okay, so I'm just really angry. So that was when I started exercising again. I got my bike out on a Wednesday and a Saturday and I just (laughs) would ride like 200k just to waste time and not have to talk to anyone. Yeah, yeah. Mm.
0: I I can't imagine doing that um, and seeing that happen to someone you love. And was there ever a moment where you thought you couldn't do it? What she needed from you?
1: No. No. Really? No, that was never... Yeah, that, no, that was never a problem. So whatever she wanted me to do, I'd do. And there were times when I was concerned that I would be the one that lost her, so she died under my watch. That was frightening. Um, but whatever she wanted me to do, I'd do. Wow. I mean, there were some funny things too. Like She had a dickhead neighbour that used to take the car park out the front. And... um I remember once she said, oh, I wish you wouldn't park there. And I said, I'll go and fix it. So I opened her window so she could hear me. And uh, I went up the front and I said, hey, uh, hey, mate, can you move your car, please? My sister needs this car park. And he said, I can park wherever I like. And I said, well, you can, but if you leave that piece of shit there, I'm going to have it towed. And then I pointed to all these other cars. He's had like three cars. I said, along with that piece of shit and that piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me, and he said, on what grounds? I said, a complete fucking asshole. <laughs> anyway, to his credit, he moved the car, and I went back in the house. And there's Jane, like a little skeleton, laughing. Oh, and I thought, well, that was worth it.
0: Oh, good on you. So in that time, did you ever actually talk to Jane about, about her dying?
1: I only even once spoke about her dying. I said to her, because she used to say to me that I didn't cry enough and I was I thought crying would look as if I felt I it was hopeless. So I, um, I didn't actually think she'd die until right at the end when it was quite obvious it was hopeless. Mm. And um, I said to her, I'm going to miss her. And she said, Oh, I've got the easy job. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, I'm going to die. She said, you're going to have to live with this shit. And she pointed to herself for the rest of your life. And I looked at her and I said, what? She said, you're going to have to remember this shit. She said, I'm just going to die. And I was like, wow. She said, you're, you're the only person that I, can, I really think will be able to handle it okay. I said, really? Anyway, so that was her insight into me. Yeah. Um, but she did say, thank God you retired because you wouldn't have had the time for me. Yeah. That was, that was quite confronting.
0: Was it why? But,
1: um, well, I just, you know, as an athlete, you are a selfish individual. I would hate to think that I would have gone, oh, yeah, okay, you know, enjoy your illness. I've got to go training. I would hate to think that I would have done that. Um,
0: do, you anyway. think, do you think Do you would have?
1: No. Not Jane. <laughs> Jane was... <laughs> what about Claire? <laughs> oh, no, no. I mean, not, sorry, not my family. Yeah. You know, yeah. but um, yeah, you just—I don't know. It's just horrendous, and you just. I mean, Jane was the least deserving of that kind of end, really. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think you would have been me. A few people would have clapped me out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, yep. I can name a few. I think in your book. Um, so tell me. Ah, oh, it's just uh, such a. It's 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 odd to describe it as a beautiful story, but it really, really is. You mentioned yeah. that you mentioned that uh, your family don't talk, and like you're in contact. You, you, do you mean you just don't talk about matters of the heart?
1: Oh yeah, we're not. Yeah, okay. So mum and I see mum and dad. I speak to them every day. Yeah, and uh, Claire lives down the road. I would see her. Or not see her, but I'd speak to her most days. So very, very much we talk, but we don't. Like we're not the kind of person. I, I can't remember the last time I hugged my mum. Yeah. You know, we're not a touchy feely happy. It's all it's all conversations to progress. Yeah. <laughs> so we don't. I mean, I I do. God, it's quite complicated. I do talk to Dad about things and. um
0: Feelings? It
1: was funny, Mum, yeah, yeah, a little bit. But Mum, so Mum read my book and she'd ring me after a chapter and say, did that really happen? Did they really do that to you? I don't remember that. And I said, well, no, I didn't really talk about it. And she said, why didn't you talk about it? And I said, well, we don't talk about that stuff, do we, Mum?
0: And she goes, yeah, okay." But even the death of Jane, none of that has actually made you as a family start opening up and just talking and sharing things no Not. does that does that seem weird to you <laughs> um <laughs> but ah oh, look it's yeah. just it's it's a, it's a you sound like a very a, a funny mob like v- yeah. incredibly stoic um and just getting on with it wow it's incredible yeah,
1: i suppose it's yeah, um, maybe that's maybe that's the pommy stiff up a yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, and you know, like I, I have a career where I thought it was soft to tell people that I didn't feel hundred yeah. percent, and you know, yeah. I was, I was having heart failure. Yeah. So you know, it takes a lot for me to actually say, "Hey, you need help over here."
0: Yeah. <laughs> but you know, like not everyone in your family is a professional athlete. I can, I can understand it from you, I suppose. But you know it just goes yeah, to show sorry. it maybe it goes to show you know i was talking about how incredibly different siblings can be but it sounds like there's some real inherent similarities there yeah. look one final question there was there was a wonderful story about when when jane died and you'd gone for a walk and you ran into someone you knew at a oh, coffee shop yeah. yeah so jane died the day before so
1: she died on a saturday evening real scorcher a hot day in Melbourne, you know, 40 plus. Anyway, the next day, you know, the house was very empty and it was a very hot day still and Jane lived in Albert Park and so we were walking down Vic Ave in Albert Park in Melbourne and I bumped into a friend um, and she was actually one of my from National Australia Bank sponsorship days and she was the lady who was my contact and I said, oh, well, I haven't seen you in ages and she said, oh, hi Emma, she said... We're just talking about this really, really sad story about a girl that lives over my back fence, and I said, "Oh, okay." And she started talking about this young girl who just had a baby, um, was diagnosed with cancer only five months ago, and had just died. And so I sat there or stood there, like I froze into mm. the story I just been living, and when she finished i just looked at her and she must have thought god Emma's a bit odd and i said yeah that was my sister and she said so you're the sister that was caring for her and i said yeah
0: Mm. wow that must have been that must have been so confronting for everyone in that conversation
1: yeah mum was there as well and mum just stood there because mum I think when she started talking, mum looked at me and I looked at mum and, and I was like, and we both kind of wanted to hear it from someone else because yeah. we were sort of, we'd been stuck in that. Not stuck, but we'd been in it.
0: And how yeah. how was her version of the story? Did it, did it like, yeah, that was pretty accurate or were there? Yeah, I mean,
1: it was very devastating. Yeah. Everyone at the table were like, you know, they had tears in their eyes and they said she was a successful lawyer and it's so sad she just, you know, wound up working and she was going to be a mum and she was so looking forward to it. And, you know, Jane was, Jane was going to be such a good mum. I mean, she'd been a mum to me all my life. She'd even bought a sewing machine. <laughs> 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 and I just said to her, holy crap, what are you going to do with that? Because, I mean, Wesley was a boy's school, so we weren't the best at sewing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, oh, well, I, guess figures, I, just, I guess she figures I guess she figures I guess she figures if you could learn to swim and, you know, become a world <laughs> triathlete, she could learn to sew. <laughs> yeah, she was just gonna do all that
1: stuff. And mum was obviously gonna
0: oh. teach her Yeah. Oh, it's terrible just so sad. Isn't it? Mm. Isn't it? But yeah. you know, look, I think your telling of that story and how you've managed to sort of just put some perspective on it. With with the with the benefit of time and and just look back on it um, is really powerful and uplifting, Emma. And I think and like I said at the beginning, uh, it gave such a contrast to who you um, built yeah, up so. as a per, per persona in your book. Yeah, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah. It, it really. Oh did. wow! And like I said to Thank you in you. an email, I think in a lifetime filled with. Um, achievement uh writing this book i think has to be up there with one of your best
1: yeah it's it's nice to have written and um i've dedicated it to my son jack yeah who um who's quite chuffed because i do actually mention i did i did end up <laughs> i did end up getting married which was also a disaster <laughs> uh, <laughs> my um my ex-husband said to me when are you going to get over this swimming biking and running and i Thought to myself, mm, probably never. But I think I'm over you. Yeah. But I mean, that's <laughs> that's a very short version of it. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I've got beautiful little Jack, and um, poor little Jack's a bit like his mum.
0: <laughs> oh, look, I think there's some good and some bad with that. I'm sure. And uh, <laughs> listen, it's been an absolute pleasure um, talking to Thanks you. Thanks for having me. Good on you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of My Fucked Up Family enough to subscribe, share or like. And remember, if you have your own fucked up family story you'd like to share, contact us through our Facebook page. Until next time on My Fucked Up Family.